Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. All right, you ready? I am as ready as I'm going to be for this case. Yeah, okay. Well, so welcome back to Midwretched. <laughs> welcome back. I'm sighing because I know what I'm in store for. Yeah, this one's, it's a rough one, I'll tell you that. But there's also kind of a lot for us just to philosophically discuss. This is one where I would say like an extra word of caution just because it is a case involving a child and you know, that can be really hard to hear sometimes. So just an extra, like, you might need to want to breather at some point, kind of. I'm literally somewhere. looking around for a fidget. Yeah, you might need, you might want a fidget. You I might have my water bear. Good call. Oh, he's so cute. I don't have a fidget. I just want to make sure I stay like really peppy through this one. So I'm drinking a Coke Zero tonight. Okay, that's good. Yeah. So today I'm bringing us through the case of Amanda Freustad. And this one has a lot, we're just going to be asking, I think, a lot of questions about basically the idea of responsibility and accountability and for whom does, do those responsibilities fall? Because this is a child case, right? This is a child case. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to kind of open up with just like a quick kind of debrief on the idea of a mandatory reporter, because that's what I've been thinking about a lot. I just did my recertification. Nice. I have to do it. Um, yeah, I um, this summer I had to lead certifications for that at school. So I'm well versed. I don't know what the laws are in Illinois, but in Indiana. We have like a licensed, like high level DCFS person do our certification. Oh, yeah. no, no, not here. So, uh, well, but there's not really a certification because it's more of a training because in Indiana, every adult is a mandatory reporter. Yeah, so we're going to cover the case that caused that too. Yes, really? Oh, yeah, we are. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Um, so in Indiana, everybody is a mandatory reporter, which basically means uh, for anyone that doesn't know, because most states, it's really just people that are in like a healthcare or kind of client-facing field or a social services type field. But for Illinois, for Illinois, I can only speak to that. It's anyone who is considered, quote unquote, a paramour. Yeah. So if you come to know a child through a position of authority, yeah. you are automatically a mandated reporter. So even a babysitter. Yeah, that's basically how it is in uh, the Dakotas where this case is going to take place. But uh, here it's everybody. So a mandatory reporter basically just means that uh, if you're a mandatory reporter and you get any um, sense or suspect or know of child abuse or neglect going on, it is your job to report that to the appropriate authorities. And so Indiana, technically every adult in the state is a mandatory reporter, which means conceivably if you knew of a case of child abuse or neglect and didn't report it, you would be potentially culpable for whatever else may happen to that child. Which is a lot of responsibility to put on every single adult, but I also understand. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility, but I think people don't know that is the thing. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I do, so I do the trainings, at, you know, in schools 
to just like, you know, here's what mandatory reporting is. Here's what count. Uh, here are the phone numbers. Here's what, you know, when they say a local authority, here's what they mean. Here's when to do DCS. Like, but I think Indiana is a pretty unique case on that mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as state laws. Yeah. What's, but I think what people get confused, at least I know in my field, is that people believe that they have to have some kind of evidence of abuse right. or they have to have some kind of testimony to abuse. But the truth is all you have to have is a suspicion. And I have always told my supervisees, uh, students, anything, if you get a bad gut feeling, even if a kid doesn't say anything, you call. Yeah. Like you don't need evidence. You don't need bruises. You don't need anything. Just call. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I would say in my trainings too. And um, I think the thing in education is that we have a culture that, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's not surprising that people are scared to make that call because you don't know before you ever have to make one what that's going to be like. Mm -hmm. And so I think what happens a lot of schools is that people will um, like, okay, if I tell the social worker, if I tell the principal, then I'm good. But really, you're not. Um, It has to be the person that that first heard it to hear it. So I just wanted to open up with that just because I wanted to kind of put it in our heads that just this idea of who, you know, who bears that responsibility and where does that responsibility kind of start and stop? And that's going to be a really important central issue in this case. So this is not a serial killer. This is not like a sensational case. This was a really dark incident that happened that, you know, like some of the cases we've covered so far, hasn't been super broadly covered outside of its location, but has kind of been used as an example of something that we'll talk about later. So you ready? I'm as ready as I'm going to be for this. I'm yeah, trying to hype yeah. myself into it. So this case is about the death of Amanda Freustad, who was a five-year-old girl living in Bowman, North Dakota. Bowman is a very, very, very small town. And what's interesting about this one is that it'll take us to both Dakotas, actually, because Bowman is a town that's not far from the South Dakota border. So it's in North Dakota, but real close to the state line. To be honest, there's not a whole lot going on in this town. It's about 1,600 people. It's very small. Bismarck, North Dakota is about 130 miles away. So that's going to be your um, closest, like decent shopping, that kind of stuff. So, you know, very rural. And then compared to other towns in the state, it uh, has more poverty and it also has a lower than state average mental and physical health status. So it's kind of a town with some struggle. What do you like a lower mental health status? You mean like people report less healthy psychological condition than the state average? Interesting. Yeah. So basically, it's it's more depressed. Do they have like mental health services there, like community mental health or anything like that? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. In this case, it's part of the problem. You know, we're talking like West Dakotas, so we're almost not in the Midwest anymore. Like we're very close to Colorado um, at this point. But um, Bowman, North Dakota, was a town that was it was the town the railroad built. Okay. So um, you know, once transcontinental air or um, railroads were being built, this was like a station town. Um, So, you know, a town that transportation built and then rail obviously is not the most relevant thing in the world anymore. Although my mother is still a regular Amtrak customer. (laughs) 
<laughs> she takes the Amtrak out here to visit me. But uh, in general, it's, you know, when that industry goes or shifts, that's what happens, you know, and that's kind of the story here, too. So um, just kind of a, yeah, a, a town with a lot of poverty and very, very, very rural. So I'm going to start with what happened on the night of May 31st of 1995. Okay. So at 412 in the morning on May 31st, local volunteer firefighters received a call from a neighbor that a small home off of Main Street in Bowman was engulfed in flame. Yeah. So this house was, it's a very small home. It was actually a converted garage and it actually was, um, it was like kind of between an alley and the Main Street. So kind of a little bit like, like it was on the same plot of land as a, a house, you know, a large house. Was it like a carriage house or like a mother-in-law suite? Kind of, but yeah, it was a garage that was converted to be a house, like okay. a single family, very small home. Okay. So uh, the home was, you know, engulfed in flame and it's a small town. So we've got volunteer firefighters. When they arrived, they found a very distraught Larry Freustad outside of the house and he was crazed and very upset that his five-year-old daughter Amanda was still inside because he had tried unsuccessfully to get her out. So firefighter Dwayne Schaff said to the paper, the Bismarck Tribune, he got out and tried to get her out. So Schaff and his men went back inside and found five-year-old Amanda deceased on her bedroom floor. Yeah. Um, and so Don Huso is a police chief. He was the police chief in town. He spoke really vividly about just seeing the sight of her tiny blackened body in the arms of a large fireman walking out of the house. And he said that that was just an image that would stay with him forever. Oh God. Yeah, I know. And again, this is, you know, a really small town and tragedy happens and I'm sure a lot of accidents happen out there, but you know, it's still really incredibly jarring, I think. And a lot of things about Amanda would kind of stick in people's memory anyway. She was a really beautiful little girl. She had these big, bright blue eyes. Her teacher, Yvette Faust, was interviewed for the paper. And her husband was actually a firefighter at the scene. Amanda was in kindergarten at the time. And Yvette Faust described her as a loving, stubborn little girl with a mischievous grin. Um, <laughs> she, uh, yeah, and you're, you see pictures of her and you see, see exactly what she means. Um, yeah, I, I was looking them up. She's she definitely has a mischievous grin. And I loved what Ms. Faust told the paper. She said uh, directly, she had a cute kind, little kind of pixie face. And she always had little pigtails. She was a nice little kid. She would give you hugs and just wanted a lot of attention. Now, others like in the neighborhood described her as a child who struggled. She didn't have what most people would think of as a developmentally appropriate amount of words. Okay. For a five-year-old, she sometimes appeared dirty or unwashed. And she showed some violent behavior towards other kids. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, and she knows I see. Yeah, it does. Um, and she also wet her pants a lot. So she had some, what sounds, you know, like some developmental mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. I, again, those are the kids I see all the time. And it comes from, from a million different causes. So she would, also neighbors would observe her just like wandering around the neighborhood alone. And we have to remember that we're talking about a four or five year old girl. Yeah. But she would be seen just wandering around the neighborhood. So these two neighbors, a couple of elderly neighbors named Pearl and Ralph Simonson, Pearl and Ralph being the best names ever. Ah, oh, perfect old people name. I know. And they actually kind of treated her like a pseudo grandchild. They like would help 
get her dressed better and they would clean her clothes for her. And they would feed her because she would often come over looking dirty and hungry. I saw one article where Pearl said that one time she ate five cookies and two glasses of milk in one sitting and it was wow. enough. Yeah. Wow. And Pearl later would go on to say she was a good, smart little girl. I knew he couldn't afford to dress her up, but he could at least feed her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great talk from Pearl. Yes. Pearl shoots it straight for sure. And she really tried. She was trying to help Amanda out and also trying to help out her dad because he's a single dad. I was going to ask, so the family structure is just Amanda and her dad. Well, it's complicated. Okay. But living in the, in the house in Bowman is just Amanda and her dad, Larry. Yeah. Her mom at the time, she moved around a lot. At this time, she was living in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is not too far. Like it's about two and a half hours away. Um, And it seemed like a little bit transient in terms of like moving from like small town to small town to small town. Yeah. Yeah. And even big city to small town, which we'll talk about like Larry. Well, we'll talk about it. We'll get there. Okay. I mean, this is also like a small town. So Pearl and Ralph were, you know, observing all this go on and they were like, okay, let's try to help with a single dad. And I think, you know, like single dad with a little girl, I think there can be some perception there that like the hair is not going to be done right because dads don't know how to do that (laughs) or, you know, you'll learn. But I think especially in the mid 90s, that could really easily be the perception. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So Pearl would try to bring over food and treats to Larry's house and try to help out. And then she would also buy Amanda like crayons and coloring books and small toys and stuff like that. I love Pearl. Me too. We should all aspire to be Pearl. Yeah, Pearl really tried, but Larry was really cagey about it, and he would actually never let Pearl see inside of the house. So she would, like, knock on the door, and he wouldn't let her see inside. And eventually, something about that relationship must have made Larry really uncomfortable because one day when Pearl tried to kind of do their usual thing, hey, come inside, we'll have a snack after school, Amanda was standing outside on the lawn and just shouting, my daddy said I can't come inside your house anymore. Oh. Yeah, I know. And it sounded like to have relationships, did he? No, he did not. He did not. But he also didn't care to have her safe in a lot of ways. Like Pearl also said that um, Larry would like lock her outside of the house, even in the winter. And we're talking about North Dakota winters. And she at least had a winter coat, but she only had it because her teachers pulled their money and bought it for her. So she's in school. Mm -hmm. She's in kindergarten. Her teachers obviously care enough. Get her a coat. People see her struggling. And I'm probably jumping the gun. But nobody's called yet. Mom has tried. And that's what we'll get to. Yeah, you keep hugging that little bear. Back to the night of the fire. Firefighters looked around and they attributed the fire to an electrical wiring issue. Now, you know, you have to remember that this is volunteer firefighters. They're amazing. They're also people that have full-time jobs that are not firefighting. So this is definitely kind of the par for the course in small towns. I've got a friend whose husband is a volunteer firefighter. They get like the basic EMS training and first aid training and that kind of stuff. But they're not the people that are going to investigate the cause of a suspicious fire. I was going to say they're not investigators. They're not electricians. They're not forensic people. Yeah. No. But, you know, they said that it sounded like an electrical wiring issue and life just kind of went on. 
Amanda was buried in the Bowman Cemetery and her headstone has a bunny rabbit on it and it says, Our Bit of Joy. Baby. I think what, you know, from what you could read about the family and everything that happened, it was like this horrible tragedy happened. People thought it was an accident and life just kind of sadly went on. Larry grieved and Amanda's mother grieved um, and then they tried to move on. Larry moved to San Diego. He um, was actually a software developer and a game developer. He was working kind of from home in Bowman, kind of trying to do that kind of work. But, you know, in the mid 90s, you really got to be in uh, California to do that. So, yeah, you know, so he went out to San Diego to pursue his career in game development and actually had like a decent degree of success. I say that was a pretty booming industry in the 90s, if I remember correctly. Totally. Yeah. And, and if I really, don't, Greg's like... going to edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was definitely. Well, he can edit both of us then, but. Yeah, booming industry, and he was pretty successful. And then Anne, Amanda's mother, who I haven't really mentioned yet, but I'll get into more later. She just, she, you know, got had a second marriage. She was pouring herself into her other kids. She was working and just trying to move on with life because, again, everyone thought it was a tragic accident. So, you know, what else can you really do but grieve and, and try to move on, you know? Was she married at the time of the accident? They were not married. So Amanda actually never knew her parents to be together. They were okay. married and then they were separated when the mom was still pregnant. They were legally divorced uh, a little while later just because it takes time, but they were legally separated before Amanda was even born. But was she having like visitation with her mom at the time or did Larry have full custody? It is so complicated. It changed okay. so much. But at the time of the fire... Amanda was headed to her mom's house for the summer in the next few days. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I have kind of a full timeline that I want to get to, but it's so complicated. So I want to kind of bounce now to Larry's life kind of after the incident. Okay. So like I said, he moved to San Diego. He had some success in the industry. But one of the after effects it sounded like was that he developed a pretty heavy drinking problem. Okay. So, and I'm really curious about your take on some of the activities he was involved in related to that. So he, you know, he was aware that he was an alcoholic. So he turned to um, an online support group called Moderation Management. Have you ever heard of these guys? Yes, in passing. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I want to talk about what that group is. Now, we have to remember that we're in the 90s. So when we talk about an online support group, what we're really talking about is a listserv, yes. like an email listserv. So basically it was 200 people that were in the group at this time. And it would just be like, you'd email out the listserv with, you know, whatever you had to talk about and people would just reply. So it's like when you're at work and somebody replies all, it's this like infinitely, because that's how, you know, that's how this worked in those days. So oh, I'm still on a couple of listservs. They're awful. Yeah. Oh, I know. They're terrible. <laughs> They're terrible. But, you know, this was a big outlet for these people. So moderation management is an alcoholism management program that believes that alcoholics can control their addiction, not only through abstinence, but through like considered and controlled moderation. In the 90s, a lot of those groups were coming out as a response to the AA modality of thinking. Yeah, and that's what they were. So their whole thing was, and they're still active. Um, they've obviously got like a much different mode of delivery now than a 200-person listserv in they the mid-90s. If I remember correctly, they are all peer-oriented. There's no professional affiliation. 
Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And it's peer governed. So, and that's- Same as AA. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It really is just kind of like the alternative. And their whole thing was that their belief is that members should take responsibility for their drinking. And the best way to do that is the controlled moderation. And this idea that people should just be, they should have choices in their behavioral treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's not one size fits all operation. And And then this, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and and that side of things I 100% believe in and accept. And I feel like in some ways it's more empowering yeah, than the full abstinence way. Of course, yeah. it being more empowering also gives a lot more room for slip-ups and discontrol and all of that. More freedom. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so yeah, moderation management I thought was really interesting. And then I pulled this off of their website. So this is like a direct quote from their like mission statement or whatever, they say, moderation is a natural part of the process from harmful drinking, whether moderation or abstinence becomes the final goal. Most individuals who are able to maintain total abstinence first attempted to reduce their drinking unsuccessfully. Moderation programs shorten the process of discovering if moderation is a workable solution by providing concrete guidelines about the limits of moderate alcohol consumption. Uh, And they seem to take like a fairly scientific approach. Um, They have like a required blood alcohol content that's like okay and acceptable. Uh, You know, they have like a a particular tenant. So is it 0.06? Yes. Yes. I believe it is. I know. Most most of them go for 0.06 because 0.08 is legally intoxicated. And they defend that moderation is less than legally intoxicated. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm always curious about what mine is when I drink because I'm such a lightweight. <laughs> but I'm like, I sniffed a beer and I'm at a 0.04, you know. Hey. Wildin. So, you know, this message resonates with a lot of people mm-hmm. and it resonated with Larry big time. So he became like a really active member. All of this kind of going fairly normally until March of 1998. I uh, pulled this really great New York Magazine article written by Lisa DiCarlo, who uh, is a comedian in New York and who is also a member of the group. And imagine everybody's surprise when on March 21st of 98, a message came through from Larry that his girlfriend of the time had dumped him. And then the line that came next in the email was this, Amanda, I murdered because her mother stood between us. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was in the email. This goes out to the entire listserv. Yeah. But probably hundreds of people. 200 people at the time, about. So DiCarlo, the comedian in New York, wrote back, is this emotional hyperbole or cold fact? And here was Larry's reply. Deep breath. The conflict was tearing me apart. And the next night, I let her watch the videos she loved all evening. And when she was asleep, I got wickedly drunk, set our house on fire, went to bed, listened to her scream twice, climbed out the window, and set about putting on a show of shock, surprise, and grief to remove the culpability from myself. Part of that show was climbing in her window and grabbing her pajamas, then hearing her breathe and dropping her where she was so she could die and rid me of her mother's interferences. Those last two screams that I tell everyone saved my life. They are wounds on my soul that I can't heal and that I'm sure I'm meant to carry with me. Oh my God. Yeah. So. So calculated. So calculated. And it's such a crack. Yeah. 
Yep. And he would later go on to describe like the um like the literal action of pretending to be upset. So he would be like walking around like pacing. Am I pacing fast enough? Does this look upset enough? Maybe I need to be moving faster. I need to set my face a certain way. Like he was really calculating like what should it look like when police and firefighters get here so that I'm not seen as suspicious. Oh my God. Yeah. So he was rehearsing that grief, Mm -hmm. rehearsing that process. Mm -hmm. And he had clearly been like pulling this through his head for a long time. When you look up this case, the one thing you're going to find on Google is that it is often seen as the first example of the bystander effect online. Oh, interesting. Yes. So we're talking about the bystander effect here for a minute. Okay. So this is, again, this idea that people are significantly less likely to report an event if there are other bystanders present. The research on Um, this is horrible. Yes, it is. And do you want to tell everyone why Kitty Genovese is bullshit? (gasps) Oh, I was waiting to tell this story. Everyone hears the Kitty Genovese story in Psych 101, and then they hear it again in Intro to Social Psych. It's a lie. Everything that they tell you about that story is a lie. They tell you that her neighbors watched on, that they completely ignored her cries and her screams. What they don't tell you is 911 didn't exist at the time. There was usually one phone per floor of an apartment. People did call the police, which is actually shocking because the other side of the story that they don't tell you is Kitty Genovese was a lesbian who lived with another woman in a highly gay neighborhood during the time of queer raids by police who would take gay and lesbian people and just beat them out back. Yep. So her community was already terrified of the police. So if anyone hesitated, that was why. Yeah. She. They also don't tell you Kitty Genovese died in the arms of a friend. Yeah. It's not like people just left her on the street. No. And that's what you're taught in those Mm -hmm. classes is that she was. And then I think the other thing that people don't say or that is totally forgotten about is that it was also just completely misreported. Completely misreported. I think the New York Times or whoever reported on it initially literally said 36 people watched her die. He made up that number. He made it up. It was totally made up. Like it just, it just did not happen that way. And that is so interesting that that's the example of bystander effect, because this example also feels very problematic to me Mm -hmm. because it's not as though he made a confession to a group that did not have the presumption of confidentiality. Yes. This is an alcoholism support group. There is an assumption of confidentiality. There's also, you had mentioned that many people posted anonymously. There's no reason to believe that he was posting under his actual name. Yeah, like there are so many reasons. I think it's so interesting that like, so we have this kind of narrative culturally about the bystander effect that is kind of founded on the case of Kenny Genovese, which is not truthfully how what happened with her. But then you take this other case and when you, if you go to like the Wikipedia page for bystander effect, this is where you'll find this case. And that's the only reason it has any real play anywhere but it's like we have this like foundational example of bystander effect in kitty genovese 
And then we've got this one, and they are both just not good examples. They're just not good examples because you have this entire supposition of confidentiality um, in this case that obscures that. And I think there have been, and there have been other cases more recently, you know, with the internet that are better examples, but, yeah, you know, and the way that this has been duplicated in lab settings and stuff like that has not been super compelling. Um, no, the actual laboratory research in a lot of social psych labs, it, it doesn't sell me. It doesn't really sell anybody in the field, to be completely yeah. honest. And I think that's just so interesting because I think we really latch on it because it's kind of, it's another way that crime can get sensationalized. Like someone saw it and, you know, or whatever, um, which we do know does happen, but not usually because a crime happens in a giant party of people and nobody just wants to say anything. So, so that's our kind of side rant about the bystander effect, but (laughs) I thought it was really interesting in this one because, um, it caused so Larry's confession and then some of their responses to it ended up causing huge conflicts and like flame wars within this group. So like dozens of people wrote back to Larry, um, some to the whole group, others just to Larry and then others to DiCarlo, who was kind of a de facto leader in the group. And they were asking, like, what should we do? What should we do? And then people were sending out kind of notes of support to Larry and saying, like, you know, this is, you know, you're obviously just grieving and this is, you know, a manifestation of your grief and all that. But- I really, I honestly believe if there is an impact of bystander effects, it's because people don't want to believe that somebody that they know did something terrible. I think that's a a big part of it. And I think in a group like this, I have to imagine, too, that you don't want to think you already have so much against coming against you culturally, like stigma for alcoholism. And you've got this support group. I think people don't want to believe that people like them are capable of this kind of stuff. Yes. It's a lot of in-group bias. Yes, exactly. That's the word I wanted. (laughs) Like, What do we call that? What do we call that? Shit. (laughs) Of we don't do stuff like that, therefore he can't do stuff like that. Exactly. The thing that tipped DiCarlo over was that somebody forwarded her an email, another woman in the group, wherein Larry was like begging her, the other woman, to give him a chance in a relationship. So while he was sending out these confessions and like fielding all the support, he was also like soliciting another woman for a relationship. Interesting. Out of this 200-person group, do you want to guess how many people reported this to the authorities? Three. That's exactly right. Did you Google it? No, I didn't. Oh, good for you. Okay, so yeah, three. I know my statistics. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, it was three. (laughs) Damn, girl, yes. (laughs) So you had kind of like different schools of thought within the group. Some people said like, this is a hoax or a hallucination from a man who's obviously grieving and in a dark place. You know, others said that it doesn't matter what he did because he's one of ours and it's in the past. You can't change it. It just is what it is. And like DiCarlo hoped it was fake. She hoped it was. Of course. Yeah. But she reported it to the authorities and the police in North Dakota asked her to like fax everything over, like all the emails and stuff. So she did every communication. They asked for every communication that had ever gone from Larry to the group be faxed wow. over. So they like kept really, the police kept in touch with DiCarlo and just asked her to like keep looking for anything you can. And then at the same time, people in the group were like just 
so mad at her and the other people that reported. One person um, wrote to the group and called DiCarlo the meddlesome, tight-assed, rat-fink minimus of an oozing worm turd. All right. I mean... I love creative insult. Yeah, like that was was (laughs) super creative. So I want to give like a little bit of credit where credit's due on that wordsmithing. And then um, that message came from somebody who had considered Larry a friend. And they also said, the cyber canary will be discovered and will get whatever measure of curse or blessing that karma has to give. So the police told DiCarlo, just like act normal, be chill, participate like you normally would. But I don't know if Larry just sensed that something was up or he just naturally wanted to backpedal or whatever, but he starts to kind of backpedal and say, he would send emails out like, is there a chance I'm not the horrible person that I feel like I am? And and could this all be in my head? And all these things that just made it sound like he was just trying to backpedal what he was could saying. Could this all be in my head? Like, Yeah, I know. I know. So interestingly, DiCarlo was able to get enough out to the police in North Dakota. And then Larry himself called Don Huso, who I mentioned earlier, who was the police chief in Bowman. And as a result of that conversation, which is not on the record, he was arrested uh, in San Diego and then extradited to North Dakota. Okay. I was going to ask if he was still in San Diego at the time. Yeah. They, they shipped him over. And he was held without bail, and he told police that he felt responsible for Amanda's death and that he remembered setting the fire. So this is when his language starts to get kind of like... He's going to start getting real wishy-washy now, isn't he? He totally is. Just, I, I want to keep this in mind about, like, was Larry entitled to confidentiality? And then what are the limits of presumed privacy in a context like this? I would love to know with the moderation, it's it's a smaller group, so they probably have less strict rules. But I know AA has very strict rules about what happens if somebody confesses a crime in the mm. context of AA. So I'm yeah. curious as to what they do, because I would be willing to bet that any state rules follow what AA does or AA follows whatever the state rules are. This is where we kind of take it. I want to take a trip in our way back machine now and talk more about Amanda's life. You know, this is hard because a lot of times when we talk about, I think, child victims, we can talk about like the beautiful, wonderful, loving life that they had before whatever happened to them happened. But that's not something that we can say for Amanda. She had a really hard life and her life was just marked by chaos and conflict kind of from the whole time. Uh, Actually, I, I saw this really kind of poignant headline from August of 98 when everything was kind of going down with Larry's case. The hurt that was her life ended with her murder. That's a hitting headline. So Amanda Marie Foy's dad was born on August 4th of 1989. So her parents, Larry and Anne, and this is where we'll talk about the mom, uh, they had been married just nine months prior to the birth of Amanda. And they actually moved to San Diego right after they were married. But... They were separated by the time Amanda was born, and Anne moved back to North Dakota, where she was from, uh, with Amanda, and Larry actually joined the Naval Reserve for a short time, kind of while they were in that separation period. So they legally divorced on May 30th, 1990, and Larry came back from the Naval Reserve. And this is where, like, you asked about the living situation, the custody arrangement. It just bounced around so much. 
The initial agreement was that Anne would have Amanda during the school year and Larry during the summer. Okay. And then... Did they live close? Initially, everybody was in Bowman. Okay. And then Anne would move around later. Larry stayed in Bowman the whole time, and Anne was the one kind of bouncing around places. Mm -hmm. So, and then in September 91, so we're talking Amanda's two years old at this point, Anne was granted full custody because there were some accusations that Larry was not able to provide proper care and that she was transported inappropriately for a two-year-old. What precisely that means is not outlined, but I assumed that it was like, um, just too much travel, or maybe he was going on trips on airplanes, or I don't know. But, like, if you asked me what I thought was inappropriate travel for a two-year-old, I would just think too much travel? Yeah. I don't know. As somebody with a two-year-old, that's what I would, I just you know. Uh, as, like, an early childhood person, it doesn't seem like there's any consistency. There's no routine. There's no rituals. There's nothing no. there. Which... There's not. When you say, like, she was delayed in terms of her speech and delayed in some of these other milestones, I I see it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think you that when you there's no routine, there's nothing to kind of rely on that talks to other issues, right? Yeah. So at that point, Larry was granted visitation, and Anne actually moved for a very short time to Gillette, Wyoming, and then she came back to Bowman in 1992. At one point in 92, they were able to come with a mutual agreement on custody, and Larry would have Amanda during the school year and Anne the summer. And what I found out that that was kind of about was that Anne was struggling with some mental health stuff, and she had actually checked her into a ho- herself into a hospital at some point and just kind of felt like she was in too vulnerable a place, basically, to care for Amanda full-time. So they just kind of reverse that agreement. What I think is really interesting, just from, like, a... Uh, uh, shared custody mom point of view is that like (laughs) we're talking school year summer arrangements for a two and three year old or even a baby like that's not how they do it anymore I just thought it was really interesting that that's what they I was gonna say so she was five at the time of the fire yeah she wasn't necessarily in school and preschools don't always go on the same like academic year calendar no yeah and she like they had the school year arrangement even when she was a baby baby like that it just like from the get-go it didn't feel like a traditional arrangement and like now in a more contemporary sense arrangements try to be as 50 50 as they can be but i just thought it was kind of interesting i don't know what to make of it i just thought it was interesting so remind me why again did they flip the custody they flipped the custody because Anne was having some mental health issues okay okay but there are other changes later that are for kind of different reasons like i said at that point everybody moved to bowman so at least they were all close together and the state started to order some court-ordered home studies to of uh, Larry's home to make sure that everything was fine. And nothing strange was found at that point. So like, like I said, like at some points, Anne would just kind of concede custody to Larry because of her mental health struggles and what she thought was just Amanda's best interest. 1994 is when things get really bad. In 94, Anne, the mom, relocated to Rapid City, South Dakota, which like I said before, is about 160 miles away. I think I Googled it to say it was about two hours and 45 minutes, which is a little bit far for like a week, week, week switch off. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for these like seasonal switch offs and visitations, doesn't seem too bad. Uh, yeah. Feels doable. Now, on July 7th of 94, Amanda's preschool teacher um, makes some troubling observations. So Amanda had been spitting on other little kids 
isolating herself and exhibiting some violent behavior, including punching another little girl in the face. And this is when she was also noted to have a delayed vocabulary. The preschool teacher suggested that Anne take Amanda to therapy, and that's exactly what she did. Good job. So, yeah, exactly. So Anne set up Amanda with a therapist in Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, and her name was Elizabeth Thorne. During Amanda's first visit with Elizabeth Thorne, she reports that her father had been molesting her. I'm going to say what she said to Thorne, and I'm saying it's tough to hear, but I'm saying it because to my mind, knowing kids this age, it's pretty vivid for a four-year-old, which Especially makes me a four-year-old with it. a delayed vocabulary. Exactly. And say, I'm, I'm guessing that this was either documented in Thorne's notes or mm-hmm. elsewhere. Yeah, it's in Thorne's notes. Yeah. So she said that her dad had been sharing her bed and that he had touched her genitals with his stick. And that to me just sounds like that's not something a four year old can invent. Yeah. To my mind. So so Thorne reported that what Amanda had told her to the South Dakota Department of Social Services So the case was picked up by a DSS worker named Lisa Fleming, who then uh, Fleming was sent out to interview the child. But when Fleming interviewed Amanda, she didn't furnish the same details. And so to Fleming, Amanda sounded like an angry child. That's a direct quote from her notes. And then she says that it indicated possible sexual abuse, but did not provide enough details to make her think it was concrete. Uh... So what I think is really interesting about what happens next is that this is where we get into some, like, for lack of a better term, jurisdictional issues. Yeah. So Fleming and her supervisor, whose name was Wendy Cummings, did not believe that South Dakota had jurisdiction to report the abuse or neglect or any criminal action that may have happened because the abuses allegedly took place in Larry's home in North Dakota. Oh, God, I'm yeah. angry now. Samesies. So... They sent their records to North Dakota Social Services, but North Dakota thought that South Dakota had the jurisdiction because that was where Amanda was when she made the accusation. Yep. Yep. I can see where that would get confused as to in terms of who has responsibility. Totally. And basically, they're just bandying around this responsibility until exactly nobody takes any. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happens. So yeah, I feel like that's the bystander effect that should be taught. Yeah, totally. Because it's like, it's this, this whole idea that somebody else is going to take care of it. And I think that's what happens in schools when we say like, you have teachers that hear a report or like hear something, you know, a suspected abuse or something like that. And they think like, oh, if I tell the social worker, she'll make the call and then I'm good. Yeah. And that's like, you're always counting on somebody else to do the right thing. Right. I mean, in my profession, we can't hammered into your head. It is you and your responsibility and your license. But I don't think that in other professions that's hammered home as hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can't say that that's the one at like kind of bummer of a mandatory reporting state where everybody's a mandatory reporter that like it's not hammered home as much because people don't know that necessarily. And it's like because everybody is it, then there's not really like extra accountability on anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas I think in states where you don't have that universal rule, the people that are mandated reporters it, there's that much more pressure to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, because, and I've seen it happen in schools before. I'm like, oh, well, I told the principal, so the principal will call, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But that actually gets you into more trouble because then it's here, it's a hearsay report. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
And that, like, the shitty part is that that's basically what continued to happen in the case. I'm going to throw a lot of dates out because this is basically a timeline of Amanda's last year. So all that happened between Elizabeth Thorne and Wendy Cummings and Lisa Fleming, that's all July 94, early July. So late July, Amanda comes back to see Thorne again, and she tells Thorne that she has a wish that her father just won't touch her private places. I know. So that's what she expresses to, again, a child without a lot of words expresses that to the doctor or the therapist. I prom- I know the question that Thorne mm-hmm. probably asked her too. Yeah. It's a yeah. delicious question. Yeah. And that, and that is something that Amanda would continue to say. Um, so then on the 17th of August, Thorne was basically like, okay, let's have Larry come in session as well. So Thorne held a session with Amanda and Larry so that Thorne could share with Larry what Amanda had said. And then her notes said that he did not respond. So at that point, Thorne recommends counseling to Larry if Amanda's going to return back to his home. But weirdly, the next thing done kind of on the timeline of everything going down was a home study of Anne's home instead. Why the home study of Anne's? Well, that's what is so strange about this is like... Anne had some issues. She did. She struggled. She had a hard time. Um, There were some other reports that happened kind of on the side that there was things going on in her home that were not so good. She had three other kids, one older kid and then a set of twins uh, younger than Amanda. And there were some reports that she like spanked the kids a little bit too hard or yelled at them. So Anne was kind of under a microscope as well. Can I ask, did Thorne only report the first incident or did she report ongoing? She reported the first incident, to my knowledge, because at that point, I think there was just this futility, you know? I get it. I get it. She's just trying to figure it out herself, basically. I get it. I hate it. And it's actually professionally, you're supposed to report it every time. Yeah. And you would think just common sense wise that you would, but... It's, I've been in this situation before where it's like, you know what, we're just going to stack up reports until they do something. And so we would report, there were calls going in every day about certain kids until somebody stepped in. And what's weird is like, you know, there's, uh, Elizabeth Thorne has never given a statement or an interview to any newspapers. This is just complete conjecture on my part, but every time I read about her, it just, it feels like I can feel the futility just radiating from her, just in how things went down and like the stuff that she was trying, like, oh, I'll pull dad into the next session. It just like, it felt like she was just kind of grasping at straws. You know what I mean? Like I could just feel this futility, you know? In October, on October 13th, Thorne sees Amanda again, and Amanda says she wishes, again, the three wishes, to stay with her mom, and that she was visibly upset at the idea of living with Larry, and that she was upset and crying about a recent overnight visit with Larry because she missed her mommy. So Thorne then makes the recommendation that Amanda lives with Anne, and that both parents undergo a psychiatric evaluation, which the state concurred should be a condition of any changes to the custody agreement. Was this is probably a really psychologist question. Was she a forensic psychologist? Like, was she hired like from DCFS to see her? No. So she was somebody that uh, Anne had found independently. Okay. Okay. 
from what I could tell, she was uh, she had uh, the master's in social work or the MCW or yeah. I I ask because it's pretty rare and it requires a pretty significant level of concern for a therapist to make a custody recommendation. Mm. Usually, we try to stay away from that, especially yeah. if we have not met and seen both parents. Well, I think that may be actually the answer to why what happened next happened next, actually. So the state agreed that that should happen, that there should be some evaluation of the parents, but those evaluations could not be conducted by Elizabeth Thorne. They um, pulled in a forensic psychologist named Dr. Frank Buzetta, actually. Okay. So Dr. Buzetta comes in. So they went up a level. Exactly. Got it. Yep. He comes in, he does the interviews. And his recommendation to North Dakota court was that the sexual abuse allegations were unsubstantial and false. He felt that Anne had pressured Amanda into saying those things and that she may have just been referring to him applying cream to her vulva for a yeast infection when she said that Larry was touching her private parts. What Dr. Buzetta instead would raise more concerns about was actually Anne's parenting ability. Um, And he had no concerns about Larry's. What that meant was that the court denied the change in the custody arrangement so Amanda would stay in Larry's care during the school year. So that ruling was finally decided on December 12th, 94. And this is in my notes, not because it's important, but just because I got the same Christmas present this year, that year, 94, and it was a really important special Christmas for me because it was when my family moved to Michigan, but... um, Amanda got a Barbie doll on her last Christmas. And one of the pictures that um, exists of her in the papers is her holding that Barbie doll. We don't know what happened between December and May. There's nothing kind of on the record. We don't know kind of what life was like. That's where some of Pearl Simonson's observations probably come into play a bit. Um, But between that December and the house fire on May 31st, 95, we don't really know what was going on in Amanda's life. So there's five to six months of a gap that we just don't know about. Exactly. Was she going exactly. to preschool or kindergarten? She was going to kindergarten, yeah. Okay. So that, um, I wanted to kind of take us through the timeline of Amanda's life before I got to what happened with Larry in, after his arrest. So now we kind of pivot back to 98 and we get into Larry's arrest. After his arrest in March, North Dakota police had, they just had a big job on their hands, right? Like, um, the fire was not particularly thoroughly investigated because no one felt there was a reason to at the time, right? So there wasn't records. There there was no information to go on to go back to, you know, searching out a cause for that fire. And as such, there was no real physical evidence. Like, the site of the house is just a pile of rubble. So what they really needed was a stronger confession out of Larry because what they had basically was all the emails that he had sent to the listserv and the fact that he called Don Huso and said, I set the fire. But saying I set the fire is not the same thing as saying I intentionally set the fire to kill my daughter. But he went on to say that, though. Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. So the problem is what he said directly to Don Huso was that he set the fire. But that doesn't tell us anything about premeditation of murder. So are the emails then like off, like out of bounds now? No, no. The emails are still in play, but because it's email. Yeah. 
and then Larry backpedals, it can't be a sworn confession, right? Got so, it. Got it. Okay. So what happens next is a search and seizure of Larry's computers and his hard drive. And what those searches revealed was something even darker than the police and prosecutors expected. Yeah. So Larry was in possession of a trove of child pornography, which included photos and videos. Many of those videos depicted him engaging in sex acts with very small children, including Amanda. God. He also took to pedophile groups online and facilitated trades of stories and videos of molestation, including of Amanda. Oh, my God. Oh. I'm yeah. getting so angry right now. I know. I know. And it was like in those days, you can kind of imagine the wild, wild west of that Internet. Like it was kind of possible to do that without being on the dark web. You know, and I mean, those were the days before the police really knew how to use internet search histories. And exactly, yeah. There's no like, I mean, forensic technology is so it's a baby at this point, right? Yeah, so, I mean, we were just past seventeen year olds hacking into the White House. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So <laughs> because war games is real life, it's real life. Yes. <laughs> so we're not exactly talking about you know, a sophisticated search and seizure, but that's what they found. Confronted with that evidence, Larry submitted a plea agreement. He pled guilty to federal charges of child exploitation, which uh, basically was about the the pornography. uh, And for that, he was sentenced to 10 years, which is not enough. Correct. And then to get that package deal, he also pled guilty to Amanda's first degree murder in North Dakota. They call it a class AA murder, but it's the same thing, which would earn him 40 years with 10 years suspended, which means that he would serve 85 percent of his time and he could be paroled. But any violation of that parole would result in serving the remaining 10 years in addition to whatever was ruled in regards to the violation itself. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. How old will he be when he gets out then? Uh, he was 29 when he was convicted in 98, so he was also kind of a young dad, actually. I was going to say, yeah. 68. Yeah, he'll be out when he's 70. So that's plenty of life to live if he keeps his health. So Let's hope he doesn't. Yeah, right? Yeah. So Larry's kind of an operator, and um, in court, so he, he pled guilty to get this package deal of a sentence um, that like by all accounts is a pretty chill sentence mm-hmm. for what he did. Uh, especially when you think about the child pornography and like without going into detail, the nature of the videos was like so beyond the pale. You can't even describe it honestly, but in court he said that he did not commit the murder. He told the courtroom, I'm not innocent of everything, but I am innocent of murder. I am sorry for what I did do. I can't take it back. And that if he had had a better defense team, he wouldn't be in this position. They all say that. I know. So Anne um, leveraged several lawsuits against the social workers and psychologists in Amanda's case in the following years. And that ended up being kind of interesting as well. So Amanda's original lawsuits or Anne's original lawsuits totaled up to damages that would have been upward about $30 million if she Wow. So she filed wrongful death suits against Fleming Cummings. And Dr. Buzetta, who was dead at the time. Did she file a lawsuit against his estate? No. Well, yeah, she did. She did. Um, But without him there to testify. 
Yeah. There wasn't enough to go on to even take that to a jury. The um, the North Dakota Supreme Court did see a case regarding whether or not that was possible mm-hmm. and ruled against her, basically. Okay. So um, that I thought that was interesting, too. But she did end up getting a partial settlement from the state of North Dakota, where a ju- jury ruled that the Bowman County Social Services as a collective, were in part to blame for Amanda's death. So the individual women involved, Fleming and Cummings, not responsible, but DSS as a whole partially to blame. So Anne won a settlement of about $100,000 for that case. Okay. So, you know, the thing about this one is that, like, it happened and then life went on and then this confession blew up and then... There's kind of this other fallout that went on just kind of professionally in the community. So I want to kind of end first by spraying this cat because he keeps attacking my crotch. It's not good. Sorry, ghost. You'll be a good kitty one day. Don't apologize to him. Apologize to my crotch. (laughs) So I want to end on uh, two... What I thought were two really poignant, I use that word a lot. I want to end on what I thought were two really interesting and pressing and urgent notes from people involved in this. So the first one is a, an op-ed letter to the editor of the Bismarck Tribune from Richard Gels, who was actually called in to be an expert witness uh, into one of Anne's cases against North Dakota. Okay. So he wrote, The jurors were reluctant to be responsible for giving Amanda's mother, Ann Purdy, her second married name, any compensation that would have come from their own and other North Dakota taxpayer pockets. The jury's frugality is understandable but woefully short-sighted. They missed a rare opportunity and sent a message that Bowman County and the state of North Dakota are unable and, to a certain extent, unwilling to protect vulnerable children. The frontline sentinels whose job it is to protect children like Amanda Freud's dad are woefully underqualified. At the risk of being called a snob from the East, I have never seen a county office of social services directed by someone whose most advanced education was in cosmetology. So he came out swinging. And the caseworker responsible for protecting Amanda time and time again ignored obvious red flags that pointed to Amanda's dangerous circumstances. Bowman County was and continues to be underprepared to protect children, and for this, the state must bear responsibility. Larry Freustad was indeed responsible for the abuse, molestation, and gruesome death of his daughter. Of that, there is no doubt. In failing to find fault within the caseworker, Bowman County and the state, the jurors muffled what could have been a loud wake-up call to reform North Dakota's child welfare services. Child protection is no better than it was the day Amanda was killed. He ends by saying, I weep for Amanda Freustad, who even in death continues to be ignored and abused, I weep for the children in Bowman County and North Dakota, whom the jury has allowed to continue to be in harm's way. So I thought that was just heavy. Yeah. You know, and then. No, you go ahead. I was going to (laughs) say, like, it's so interesting because we're going to cover a case here in a few weeks that addresses kind of similar issues of bystander Mm -hmm. effect and social services and whatnot. And I know I had talked to you a little bit um, about, like, the Gabriel Hernandez case. Yeah. And it feels as though every few years one of these cases comes up again. And we Mm -hmm. have the same conversation over and over again. Yeah. And it's hard because 
we keep having the same conversations, we keep losing children's lives, and there is not that big systemic change, to quote my girl Elizabeth Warren. Like, yeah. there is not that big system that is going to overhaul and change the lives of people. And I think, in part, you know, us being party Midwesterners, we don't we don't like people knowing our family business. We don't like people, yeah. you know, telling us how to raise our kids and whatnot. But all of these cases are so far beyond telling yeah. people how to raise their kids that can we please just put that conversation aside and deal with the problem at hand? Right. And that, I think, was kind of part of the even what happened a little bit with like the home visits and stuff like that, like Anne yelled at her kids. Yeah. She was a loud person. Mm-hmm. She, um, she spanked them. She was a spanker. I'm not a spanker, but people do that, you know, and it's not considered broadly to be child abuse. It um, is, it is literally off the table as far as child abuse comes on. If I mean, I'm going to cite you research study after research study after meta-analysis after meta-analysis that it doesn't work. But when it comes down to it, that's really not what social services cares about. No. At least it should be. But I think that's what kind of part of what bogged down this case to some degree was that like, okay, Anne was not a model parent. And I use scare quotes for that. Um, Larry had you know, a good job and he's a struggling single dad and he's doing these things and, you know, didn't outwardly look like an, a, a child abuser, but he was peddling in the darkest stuff you could imagine, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think like what complicates it too is like you want, you know, we all want to be able to place blame on someone particular, you know, so it's like, is it about Elizabeth Thorne or is it about Cummings? Is it about Fleming? Like who, who really messed up here? We, you know, you want to put that buck somewhere, but you can't, you know, and that's why we can't have systemic change on this. Like until we can come to some kind of consensus about where fair blame lies and what consequences apply. Yeah. How do you create that systemic change? You know? Yeah. It... Yeah. But even in Gabriel Hernandez's case, like the violence against that child, to what I know about it, was reported over and over and over over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. This was one where like it wasn't over and over and over again. It was when things really went down in 1994 and Elizabeth Thorne, I think, did what she thought was the best thing she could do, Mm -hmm. you know, and she was up against a wall, too. But... You know, you want, you don't want to place the blame on like a neighbor that saw something and didn't say something because again, mandatory reporting is not mandatory for a neighbor who sees something weird Yeah, in North Dakota like it is here. But, you know, where do you put that? Like Pearl Simonson was feeding this child. Should she have made a report? I don't know. You know, like I wish she had, but is she in the wrong for not having done so? I don't know. Yeah. Ooh, I got feelings about this. <laughs> Get those feelings out, girl. So many feelings and so many questions. Like, I just don't know where to put it. And it's the same questions with the bystander stuff. Like, it's just so ambiguous. Like, of course, I would like to think that if that came across a listserv that I was on, I would take it straight to the authorities. Yeah. 
but would I be in the wrong if I didn't? Mm -hmm. I think so personally, but I think somebody could easily make the the inverse argument, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because like, while we've been talking, I've been trying to like flip back and forth between a couple of different like websites here, looking at like AA anonymity and just kind of general support group anonymity. And it feels like everybody dodges the question as hard as they can. Yeah. There's a couple of legal arguments that I brought up briefly and they all just tend to disagree with each other. You know, rulings have gone in both directions. So then what that creates is exactly no legal precedent. If rulings go in multiple directions, you can't say, okay, and you know, this case, we have a precedent for this, this, this. So we go in this direction. You can't do that if there's contradicting precedent. Well, and I even, I think about, my role as I don't do therapy anymore, but when I was doing therapy, um, my role there is people have to be able to speak. Yeah. And they have to be able to speak without fear of consequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you do? Right. Well, and I think the same question, like for clergy too, right? Like that's what, you know, if you're in confession, you have that, you know, that assurance is just you and your priest and God, and that's it. Well, and I also want to kind of like demystify it and destigmatize it because the vast, vast majority of times that you contact DCFS, it's not going to be an Amanda case. No, it, it really isn't. And I think people fear calling child services because they're like, well, I don't want the kid taken out of the home. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge minority of cases. There are so many good reasons to call child services. They can get family therapy. They can get parent therapy. They can help hook you up with food stamps. They can help hook you up with speech and clothes and, you know, early intervention services. You know, they are there to fill in gaps. And I want to take away this idea that all they do is take kids away. Exactly. So the other thing I want to wrap up on is a quote from Don Huso, who is that police chief in Bowman. He, I just, I liked what he had to say about this because I feel like it kind of encapsulates actually the message of Midwretched in a lot of ways. I want people to be aware that these things happen in small town, North Dakota. We have a wonderland attitude about rural North Dakota, but we are living in a dream world. And that is the story and case of Amanda Freustad. A moment to, you know, just reflect on, you know, and to just keep in your thoughts a young girl whose life was lost and whose life was a tragedy after tragedy. Yeah, I just want to like that was one where I wanted to make sure that it was solemn enough to be reverent to that life, you know? Yeah. 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 But also all these issues that you know, between the bystander effect and the responsibility and the mm-hmm. uh, the moderation management idea, like there's so many things, so many issues at play, you know, yeah. that made it so complicated. Yeah. And so many lives were disrupted because of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, Larry Forstad is serving his time. He's in a, a prison in Wyoming, actually a federal prison. And, you know, is with her other kids who are all adults now and they all live in, you know, that same area, just 
you know, living, doing the best they can, you know, after such a horrific incident happened. But you, yeah, you try to kind of do whatever you can, breathe and continue yeah. life and live. Yeah. So that's that case. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. And I'm sorry. Okay. But, you know, I think an important one that you don't hear about. I couldn't find one podcast that had ever covered it. And I was like, really? I'm glad that we're covering a lot of these. I'm glad that we are finding kind of the space to tell some of these stories. Me too. Me too. And like on that note, I kind of want to make a plug for somebody else, actually. Like um, I've been listening obsessively to Black Girl Missing. which is a podcast that uh, tells the stories of missing black girls under the age of 18. And uh, they're doing really important work and they actually open every episode of their podcast with like contemporary missing cases. And they'll just kind of read off like, you know, the name and the last scene and what they looked like and stuff like that. And then they kind of get into a singular story of a particular girl. But they're just doing really amazing, important work. So I would recommend giving them a listen as well. Yeah, guys, give them a listen. Give them a like. Uh, how do we want to outro today? We came up with our slogan. Uh, I was going to, you know, pump up our Halloween spooktacular, but it feels a little inappropriate now. We'll get there. But what else is happening on Halloween? Are we allowed to pump this up? Yeah, pump it while I get my computer charger. Tommy's getting married. I'm so excited for you. Me too. Me too. I am thrilled. So many good things happening this Halloween season to help buoy us in these dark days. Buoy. But yeah, so we're going to have a Tommy wedding that won't be podcasted. No, Um, it'll be awesome. It'll be awesome. And we will have ready and roaring for you a Halloween spooktacular. Yeah. There's ghosts. There's astrologers. There's some anti-Italian immigrant propaganda from the 1920s. Which nothing says Halloween like. (laughs) Nothing says Halloween like xenophobic policing. (laughs) (laughs) Spooky every day of the year. (laughs) But mostly there's ghosts and a really bad astrologer. Hell yeah. This is going to be awesome. Yes. So please join us for that. And until then, please, as always, hit us up on the socials, Facebook, Midwretched, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, both are Midwretched, Midwretched at gmail.com for your questions, comments, case recommendations, and what have you. Send us very nice iTunes reviews. Yes. Yes. And reviews anywhere else that people take reviews, pocket casts. I don't know where else takes reviews, but we like reviews. If you write a really cool one, we might read it. Yeah. Yeah. And we might love you forever. So be nice. Eat cheese. We love you. Yay. hands are all sticky from the apple crisp let's figure out when we're gonna clap let's clap together all right all right what are we doing here uh do clap, do. clap on 20 <clears throat> okay when it's when it hits 20 okay at the crack of 20 crack 20
This part stresses me out. We did it!